I am that Williams guy, and I have lost control of this episode before it even gets started. Uh, There are some shenanigans afoot, and we probably won't stick any sort of plan, probably because we don't have one tonight. Um, At TatCon, multiple people came up and said, I really like the haphazard nature of the last couple of episodes. Well, if they like those, they're going to love this one. All right, so because if what happened before I hit the record carries over, this is going to get rather interesting. Uh, In my lower left-hand corner, I don't know where they're appearing for everyone else, but in my lower left-hand corner, we have the dynamic duo together in one spot tonight. Mark, introduce yourself. Hi, Mark Fricky, retired Sergeant Presque Arizona Police Department. Um, Was there a cop for 28 years total? Farm instructor, been a farm instructor since 1980. Um, worked for a major uh, national training organization. Run my own farm training business and get to travel around the country and teach police officers how to be instructors. So that's me. Uh, Rob I'll... Garrett, the the other side of the AARP screenshot tonight. <laughs> um, 38 years with Columbus, Georgia PD. I ran a training division. Worked uh, professional standards. Investigated a lot of officer involved shootings. I've uh, been writing, starting with Harris, and now with Athlon since 1984, and uh, a self-avowed J-Frame addict. And Rob is not here to play the foil tonight and make everybody mad. He's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, if they see I'm on this, you won't get any viewership, or you'll get a whole lot, one or the other. <laughs> and uh, they are together at Rob's house, so that's why they're sharing a camera screen. Here. Is is someone translating for them? Because Arizona and Georgia may not be the same language. Actually, I, I can speak Southern. I, okay, I, I got it. I got it. Uh, now, Mark may fall asleep halfway in between the show because you know he's be used to different times. But uh, no, he's on. He's on his 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 second nice pour of Hoot Young. So <laughs> quite quite tasty. Uh-huh. Eric Elhouse. Eric Gellhouse, uh, retired cop out of Northern California, finished up as a patrol sergeant, running firearms field training, occasional gun writer, formerly with SWAT, now with Firearms Media Group, teach at gun site, dad, have my own training company, Cougar Mountain Solutions. Brian Eastridge. Let's see. I am the uh, frequent guest on the Handy McMood Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast. Kidding. No. So, uh, Brian Eastridge, I've been... Uh, say a cop for almost 21 years i'm about to retire uh kind of on the injured reserve list right now which is why i'm carrying the db pillage and plunder special kit uh i've got a training company eastridge training and consulting which is also a patreon page if you're interested in tearing into your own guns and and maintaining them uh got edc belt company that's my main jam other than police work which is on lee's hat uh my What's that? He's oh, on his third four now. I ain't mad at him, man. I, uh, let's see. And since there's Hooten and Young, I have a little Buffalo Trace going on. Uh, but I thought Damn. at some point I'd do a, I'd do a little bag dump. If anybody wants to see my my injured bag, uh, I thought if it was going out on YouTube, I'd kind of make a funny on that. But this is a paid. This is a paid endorsement for Wilderness Survival. Yeah, Wilderness Tactical, Sam, thank you so much. Got the DB Bad Santa limited edition patch. Uh, But uh, I thought some interesting tidbits that I carry around in here. 
Uh, number one is a 1911-2011 extractor because everybody needs one of those because they, you know, fail all the time. Uh, spare, spare mag for the gun that actually works. That's a Glock 17 mag. Uh, screwdriver for the 2011. Does that uh, also work on a revolver? It, it will work on a revolver. If you Patreon, you've seen that screwdriver before. And then this one, that's for fitting the extractor on the fly. So when your extractor dies in the gunfight, you can throw another one in. Uh, there's that. Double as long as the firing pin stop doesn't drop. But... There's that. Uh, Exercise-induced asthma. PTG sap. Uh, this one I'll have to kind of cover. It's a three-inch K frame because you got to have a three-inch K. Snuff, you know, because you can't trust a man without a good vice. Uh, wallet. Light. Reload for the K-frame and DV patch. And I think that'll get me through a school zone, as Wayne Dobbs says. <laughs> and so. As I said, I have already lost control of, of this episode. <laughs> Just right, grab Lee. the reins, brother, and hold on. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into our uh, actual topic for tonight, we're going to turn it over to Mark and Rob to ask the three of us questions about TACCON because uh, Eric and, and Brian and I were each presented at uh, TACCON which concluded this past weekend and so Mark, Rob, take it away you two fight for whoever's going to ask what well, I'll start because I don't know what you guys thought so why don't you tell us what you thought that my mention. well, TAC what? TACCON, short for Tactical Conference so it's the Rangemaster Tactical Conference put together by Tom Givens combined with the old Polite Society match for the last few years and for the foreseeable future, it's the Dallas Pistol Club in beautiful scenic Carrollton, Texas. Well, Eric, so, you can tell them what you taught since you've... <laughs> I was just trying to help with the TACCON thing. Yeah. Uh, so five classes, um, allegedly in the running for the Rented Mule Award that Lee fell through on producing. Uh, classroom stuff was ready positions and better outcomes, looking at the research on where we have the gun and how much information we can process and how that translates to things working out the right way uh our favorite studies which was uh lee john hearn and myself production um there i was covering some research on the speed at which you can stop shooting as opposed to start shooting or keep shooting but how quickly you can get off the gas um and the likelihood of too many rounds going down range also did a thing with lee and uh, john dobb called the aftermath where john and i both talked about uh, our shootings and what happened afterwards and Lee came in and talked about some changes in Georgia state law related to officer and ball shootings during his tenure as the chief deputy and did broken and blocked optics, like what to do when your dot gets covered in crud or the battery dies or the windage adjustments completely fail and how to keep the gun in the fight because there's a progressions of really bad things before we get to those. And then the last one was reactive shotgun. Uh, using the shotgun in a home defense scenario, not to go out and assault the Nakatomi Plaza, but how to deal with somebody booting in your front door when the shotgun's your uh, weapon of choice. That was, that was my stuff. But Lee didn't I, like red dots. So. No, no. And there, of course, naturally, I post the picture of Lee shooting at the dot with the power down in that broken and blocked class. And I actually, somebody's like, gets in there and is all serious. Like, he's been to hundreds of hours of training. Like, you're not paying attention, dude. Shut <laughs> yeah, as Eric told us to turn our optics off for that drill. According to Shah, he announces to the class, Lee hates red dot so much he turned his off in the middle of a class. 
with friends like that. Yeah. Well, and then since we got to work on the water thing, because Lord knows dots won't work in the rain, yeah. I sprayed his dad with water. Shut up. Shut up. I'm not saying it. And made him work through the problem. <laughs> Made him work through the problem of having water on the dot, so I also accused him of trying to drown his optic. Uh, on a serious note, uh, in previous classes that I've shot that were dot classes, and they did the down optic thing and dump water on your stuff, I was always shooting an open emitter optic. In this class, I was shooting a closed emitter optic, and there was a tremendous, tremendous <laughs> difference. Uh, closed emitter is the way to go. Yes, it is. Let it go. Uh, I did not teach a live fire block this year because I was being obstinate. And um, Tom and I had agreed on what I could do. And I submitted it and someone else said no. And I said, okay. And then they said, well, where's your live fire classes? I'd already submitted it. And you said no. So I'm not submitting another one uh, just because I was going to be obstinate that way. Um, uh, as, as Eric said, I did a class with he and John Hearn. Uh, on studies, and I presented one on the basically the failures of academy training, uh, where core science studied academies in the U.S., Canada, and England, and traced students that were being taught, supposedly taught, uh, simple skills and complex skills, and the way they measured those out was simple skills was one that had five steps or less, and complex is one that had five or uh, ten steps or more. And they came back and they tested the students or the cadets one week after the training, four weeks after the training, eight weeks after so, so forth, and how much of a skill degradation there was, because all of this was blocked or siloed training, whichever one you want to want to use uh, term. And the skill degradation was uh, tremendously drop off because there was no connection made to the training. They were just checking boxes, not actual learning occurring. Uh, also did the aftermath, uh, as Eric mentioned, with uh, uh, he and, and John Dobb, and you know, just basically relaying some some things that took place in two uh, deputy-involved shootings in which I did administrative investigations running concurrently to the criminal investigations and some things that transpired uh, with that and some change, policy changes and all that came out of that, both within our agency and uh, our state investigative agency. Um, I also took Michael Green's live fire block on, um, uh, we call it advanced covert carrier drills, took that uh, with Eric. We were shooting buddies on the line and milled around a bunch of other classrooms and stood in the parking lot and talked to Brian a good bit. So, Brian. Well, uh, I taught a condensed form of what I normally teach in a two-day block called skill building. And I just, I titled it, uh, the fundamentals in context uh and it was really a a pretty simple shooting block uh but it exposed a lot of shortcomings in some people's training and then i use cooper's combat triad i give them kind of a general overview of that uh, as ways to identify shortcomings in your training mindset marksmanship gun handling and and gun handling. I don't go into the tactics side. Uh, and I break each one of those down and give a little bit of a lecture behind each one of them. Uh, and then I do an, a, what I call an abbreviated Dobbs safety brief, which is like I take one of the safety rules and I give an example of when it failed and how we apply that in c the context of being a, the gun toting populace, right? Uh, 
and I give examples in police work and civilian or armed citizen where those have failed, where somebody ignored a couple of safety rules and those failed. Uh, and a lot of them were firsthand accounts that I, I've been involved in. So uh, I did that. And then the shooting is everything's done from low ready, gun in hand. Uh, and we progress through a dry block into uh, making one, two, three, four, and five shots in a kind of a narrowed up time frame uh, with a regimented account for accuracy. So uh, it really exposed a few things with some of the red dot shooters that there was a lot of self-discovery involved in that. Like, oh, I've never shot from a low ready before. Uh, several of them have been on the red dot path for a long time and went, oh, I just found a gap in my my game. Yeah. Um, and uh, iron sight shooters, a lot, a lot of the class had never spent any time starting with the gun already in the hand in kind of a challenge position. So it, it wasn't so much a let me teach coach and train you how to shoot well, as much as it was evaluate where your gaps are in training and use the combat triad as a template to figure out where we need to go with our training. Uh, and being it was my first time at TACCON, I teach that block in a even more condensed form. So it was just kind of a teaser for a two-day block. Uh, and, and I got a lot of good feedback, so I felt pretty confident about it. Yeah, and I got what? to introduce my lovely, my lovely muse and anchor, Trish, to all of my gun boyfriends, as she calls them. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, one we got to see the I... white girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That one even got Tom Gibbons. So, one class that I should probably point out that I took was uh, John Holston's class, and where yeah. he's been working with um, a light system developed by Dustin Solomon that is giving him a way to measure uh, people overshooting on targets, how long it takes them to recognize the transition needed and make transitions, et cetera. Uh, John's been on the show several times. He's one of the best thinkers in this business. And uh, it was really interesting to see how he took traditional range things that we're doing and converted them to what actually is going to be successful in the field. And that was a really, really, really good class. I also took Eric's class on, on the ready positions. Etc. classroom presentation. Um, I know Daryl was there and Caleb was there this year. Yep. And anybody want to share? He is uh, quite the ambassador for Taurus now and putting out a lot of good content. And I know Taurus is is on the move in the right direction. So, would somebody like to share about both Caleb and Daryl? I didn't make their class. I I caught Caleb, uh, and first of all. You mentioned John Holshin. Uh, he and I gun nerded in the parking lot so long that I got like a, a, a third degree sunburn. So that was awesome. Thanks, John. Uh, but had a had a lot of good discussion. But Caleb and I were bouncing off of each other throughout the, the conference. Uh, we both shot wheel guns in the, the TACCON match. Um, and he was kind of, he buddied up with DB for a couple of blocks. Uh, and then he shot most of his live or all of his live fire blocks with uh, a Taurus. I think it was in 82. 82, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, and, uh, basically model 10 for the Taurus line. Yeah. And uh, he and I were kind of paired up in uh, Tom's How Qualified Are You class live fire block. Uh, and 
he can run a he can run a revolver. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And that Taurus performed flawless. Uh, same Taurus that he shot in my class at Revolver Roundup in November, and uh, proceeded to punch this the the X ring out uh, and the tin ring at 25 and 50 yards, standing offhand with. So, uh, like you said, that that was kind of our uh, deal this year was kind of explore revolvers and he did a lot more of it than I was able to, but, but yeah, that, that was kind of, I don't want to speak for Caleb, but every yeah. live fire block he did, everything he, he did, he did with a, uh, essentially the Taurus model 10. So how long, how long is that gone? Three days, Friday, yeah, Saturday, how people, Sunday. How many people show up? Uh, if you count presenters and RSOs uh, along with paid attendees, uh, there's 450 slots, roughly. Uh, we oh, had yeah. like 15, 50 no-shows this year, though, so roughly 400 people in the facility. Um, I never ran into Caleb throughout the whole weekend, and he was not officially part of TACCON. No, I think he came and sh- I think he came and uh, shot it. He just he came and yeah, he came he came yeah. as an attendee, and Jen, yeah. uh, Daryl asked him. I participate in a couple of his blocks. Uh, Eric and John Hearn and I did walk back for one of uh, DB's blocks, and he had asked Rhett Newmeyer to step up with him during that one. And uh, someone took a great picture of Eric and John and I standing in the back ignoring Daryl as he spoke. <laughs> well, the uh, yeah, Caleb was there as an attendee, and Friday he didn't get there until very late because yeah. he had some delays with flight, but. Yeah, it's a uh, very big delay. It, it, yeah, the, but I'll tell you, somebody else that's really pushing the envelope is Red, and, and yeah. some of the stuff he's doing too. You know, it's, yeah, I, with the 400 people there, and this was bigger than it was in previous years because they made some parking changes where we could get some more people in. Um, it's funny, every year there are people that I trip over every time I go somewhere, I run into them. And then there are people that I didn't even know were at the event until I see pictures. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, like I, said, I never cross paths with I've never met him in person and then uh, never cross paths with him that I recognized. Uh, last year, everywhere I turned, I ran into Masayub. This year, I saw him like three times from across the kind of waved and then finally ran into him, got a chance to speak. Um, and then Just I saw a picture of somebody today that I didn't even know was there. Go ahead. I'm out sorry. of curiosity, do uh, is the shuttle bus from the hotel a normal thing? We did that last year, and we did that this year. Uh, I don't want to step out of turn and speak, but the costs far exceeded the uh, efficiency of ridership. Um, let's just say it cost based on the ridership this year, $400 per rider. So <laughs> I don't know that that's going to continue to be a thing. Uh, we can't, yeah, well, I say we, Tom's who's doing it. I don't know that Tom's going to continue to spend that amount of money and it not um, get used any more than it did. Oh, well, I wasn't aware there was one available. Okay. Uh, I, I didn't know until a couple of days before, but having all my like presenter guy gear, yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to utilize it, but as an attendee, I would have, you know, uh, but I, this year was the first time I noticed it. And, uh, I think there were more on the last day using it than there were the first, the first couple. So I hadn't, I hadn't heard about it. I don't think until Friday, like Friday was when I heard something about it. So 
Um, you know, just pe people know what they pay for an event and they look around and they start doing math and they start counting up. Well, wow, look at all the money they made. I, I don't know how much we spent, again, same way as Tom, uh, spent on like glue this year, but I know last year over $700 worth of sprinkling was bought to put the targets up. You know, so the, yeah. there, there's a lot of overhead with, uh, with, that with goes into this. Something stuff. that event that big, there would be, right? All of us running our own business and we all understand that overhead. A lot of people don't thinking that, you know, you're making all these big mm -hmm. bucks, but they don't understand the fact you got to support all this stuff too to make sure it works. So yeah. um, what about the match? I want to hear about the match. I was, I was happy with the match. Not as happy as I could Absolutely be, but I was happy with the match. Mm -hmm. uh, the, way the, the way the match is run is that on Friday and Saturday, uh, you're given an assigned time to show up and shoot, but there's some flexibility in that. Uh, we had a thunderstorm hit just before setup on Friday morning, so we didn't even get the match range set up until like 10 o'clock or so Friday. Uh, there's a series of standards. Uh, they set the timer up. You get four second exposures and there's different things you have to do at each yard line. Um, there were no reloads on the clock, but you know, cause you got some people shooting revolvers. You got some people shooting combat micro guns and everything. Um, long story short, if you dropped any points in the standards, you were pretty much eliminated. And then there's a tiebreaker. Uh, that's basically a Comstock scoring type thing or a time factor, hit factor scoring uh, to break any ties. Um, unfortunately, I, as the, the audience knows, I've been having a lot of problems with my hands. I had surgery on my strong hand in uh, August. I've got the same condition in my left hand and I'm moving it freely tonight, but sometimes the tendon and the shoot the trigger finger on my support hand locks up and I had exactly one of those as I on a support hand only shot and the gun popped on me and I pulled a shot and lost a couple of points there so I was out of it and then after that I just had the concentration and I dropped another shot that was not anything related to do to medical condition it was just me dropping a shot um the top 16 men go into a head-to-head -head shoot off and the top eight women go into a head-to-head -head shoot off uh Heather Reeves was the women's champion, and um, Mirko Mugley was for the second year in a row the men's champion. And it's a pretty intense thing, you know. It's just you get called up uh, two, you know, two at a time, and you battle it out in a head-to-head -head match, best two out of three to move on. Uh, Lane Thayer uh, inherited my title as high lawman for this year, and Lane was a machine the first couple of matches. He got eliminated in the semifinals. Uh, his first match, I don't remember who he was shooting. He got up and he did not miss a shot anytime he came out of the holster. Sat that guy down on two straight strings, sat the second guy down on two straight strings, gets up for his third match, and he got beat in the first string. He leaned over and said something to Tom, and I couldn't hear it from where I was at. It turned out that he told Tom the first two matches I did what Lee told me to. That time I did what Hearn told me to. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> And then he got eliminated, and then Mirko ultimately went on the win. Um, Ryan, your thoughts on the match? Uh, very good. I am a big proponent uh, in, in all of my gun boyfriend and gun nerd talks with uh, guys like Eric, Daryl, Wayne, Mark, all these guys, uh, and Justin Dial specifically. He and I bounce stuff off of each other pretty 
pretty much weekly or monthly at least. And uh, all of us are kind of wired in that. How, what can you do in a given time frame as opposed to can you beat some metric that someone has created, right? So uh, the match, I actually emailed Tom and said, hey, Justin Dial wants to see the match and he's going to email it to me sometime here in the future, the, the match standards. But thought it was really well laid out. I shot it with uh, the three inch K frame, 13-4, last FBI issued revolver. Uh, I cleaned it and I shot the uh, tiebreaker in 3.57, which I felt like was the ultimately ultimate appropriate time. Uh, and I was a second off of the shoot off. So the skill, the, the last three years, the, uh, the matches, this, just the level of shooter that sh that's been in the match the last three years has increased. Uh, 2019, I made the shoot off by some fluke or miracle. I don't know what happened. We had bad weather in Louisiana. And that particular match involved a lot of courses of fire that I had just shot in Wayne Dobbs class like 30 minutes before. So I walked into there warmed up and like, oh, the five-yard roundup again? Okay. <laughs> I just did that. Wow. Uh, so uh, I, I like that it changes every year. It adapts every year. And you pretty much don't know what you're walking into. Um and I, and I really, I enjoy that because it's uncomfortable and it pushes you to go, okay, what do I have in my tool chest right now? Um, and this was only the second year out of four years I've attended TACCON. The first, the first year and this year were the only two TACCONs that I think I didn't drop points in the match. Um, so and this year I did it with a revolver because I've been shooting a lot of revolvers lately. So uh, that was kind of a good feeling. And then Caleb bested my score by a solid second. So good on you, Caleb. But uh, so Caleb and I, th I think we were the only two that, that ranked in revolver. We were like one and two in revolvers and he was like number 18 and I was like number 58. So we were joking. Well, I guess we took first and second in the revolver hide match or something. I mean, just in jest, but, um, but, and I said it last year and I said it in 2021 at Dallas, you could have taken the top probably 60, 70 shooters and just replaced names anywhere on the board because it's a really high skill set now that, that uh, gets into the final 16. So. Yeah. It flips dramatically from year to year. Uh, yeah. Last year, I was in the shoot-off and was high lawman, and this year, I was 54th. Yeah, and and that's, to me, that's a testament that the match isn't just a rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. It will expose somebody's shortcoming in their game year over year. So, yeah, the match was laid out well. Everything was on a four-second part time. There was no – and it's a turning target match, and a, what I found – coming from law enforcement, you pretty much shoot on turning targets exclusively when you're in qualifications or training, et cetera, you're going to be on an air driven system and you get accustomed to it. And a lot of people that have never done anything but shoot on a timer, it really changes the dynamic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and 
with the level of skill sets that I'm seeing year over year, what I'm seeing is the turning targets are no longer an issue, right? People have kind of figured that whole thing out. So yeah, it's a good match. It's it a great match. Eric, did you have a comment? No, the, the, the flipping is right. I, my first tack con, I was in the top 20. Uh, this was before the, the, the shoot off <clears throat> era had come in. Like last year I was in the sixties. This year I was, was 20, 29th and I was in the high twenties. So yeah, it can bounce back and forth, but I do know this year, both the main shoot and the, the tiebreaker I cleaned, it was clean, shot clean. So, and I was <laughs> like three tenths, three tenths of a second off the cutoff. The cutoff, yeah. if I remember, was clean and 225. I thought they said yeah. 24. Okay. Last I heard, was yeah. 20, it may have okay. dropped even more after uh, even after that. So, if you dropped any points, you were pretty well out. Yeah, no point, no points down, just not fast enough on the uh, yeah. tiebreaker at 27. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, like, I thought, man, I just, I just smoked it in three and a half with a wheel gun. I'm in. And I, and I went to Julie and I said, how are we looking? And she goes, you're at least a second off right now. And it's getting yeah. that top wow. 16 is getting narrower and narrower. Yeah. So what, what was the tiebreaker? Tiebreaker was from a low ready at five yards, oh. five shots Ooh. to the head. Okay. Four inch circle, four inch circle. Uh, range master, range master target. But you shot from concealment. You shot from low ready. You, yeah. Brian mentioned the turning targets. Um, you shot freestyle two uh, strong hand only, weak hand only. So kind of like, kind of like taking Justin Dial's five yard roundup, chucking out the initial shot from the holster, um, but running the four round stage from the holster, running the two and three round stages so got it okay that sounds cool and what did we go back to 10 or 15 15 uh, I went back to 15 i believe yeah, i think so two so. shot like two shots from 15 from a low yeah. ready in in like four seconds yeah. but but what i really liked about it is everything this year was in that four second window they didn't yep. change the uh the exposure times Mm -hmm. and the closer you were, the more you were expected to shoot in that four-second window, but it was never so fast that you had to outrun your headlights. Yep. Yeah. You just had to do everything perfect. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the, the five shots was the air it out. You know, it was individual timed, five shots to the four-inch circle at the head at five yards, and uh, that was really where the tie-breaking or the – the shoot off was determined was on that. So, and every type of gun out there, I mean, were they, were they any, there were no race guns or were they all good? Uh, oh, there was a race gun. Little, <laughs> there was a little bit of everything. There was, was a race like, gun. Did the race guns win? No. Good. Okay. You're supposed to, you're supposed to shoot from either concealment or duty gear. If duty gear is applicable. Yeah. Okay. Um, some people's, concealment's a little on the iffy on concealment side but they typically it, don't don't make it it was covered it was covered and, it wasn't yeah. and the magwell was about the size of a pie plate <laughs> but, but it, my my setup i i had actually a, a leather strong side yeah. holster and it wasn't broke mm -hmm. in so i borrowed a jm appendix rig 
from Daryl the night before the match. Uh, went back to the hotel room, figured it out, and uh, then I, I swapped some stocks from a gun I picked up in Georgia. <laughs> uh, swapped some Eagle Secret Service stocks onto uh, my 13 and took the Tyler. I was going to shoot Magnus with a Tyler T just for purity, and I realized yeah, it's going to be kind of hard, so, or it's going to be harder than I should be. So I put on some Eagle seat. So I changed my stocks and holster like 12 hours before the match. Uh, and then, it, but it worked out. And uh, oddly enough, in the match, I was actually, I was two by two loading out of my pocket. And I had speed loaders. And I was done and back, you know, did my high primer check, all that, and back in the holster about the time the guys running magazines were. So I felt pretty good. It's like, I still got the revolver thing. We're good. Moving on. But, but I, I mean, I really, even though at 58 in that field of shooters, I was like, you know, I'm not disappointed in that at all because that was me running a revolver at. Against autos, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and. and so I, I, you know, I didn't feel like, oh, well, I got cheated, or the match was centered towards these guys, or whatever. It really came down to the headshots. So, any uh, uh, any lessons learned regarding equipment and failures that we want to talk about from the Not, match or from the conference? Just in general. I mean, you know, do we did we see, for instance, most of the red dots held up? Uh, and not trying so to see that. I did. I was aware of one red dot that came off a gun. I was aware of a couple red dots that showed up broke and they came and took the broken and blocked optics class with the broken red dot, which I thought was kind of cool. That's good. Good for them. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, it's already broken. So there were a couple things they couldn't do because I wanted to establish baselines with them shooting with the dots um, and then put them into take, taking away the, you know, the reticle, the dot, whatever you want to call it. Um, but they did fine. I, again, I saw one optic come off a gun and it, what, this wasn't the optic. I think this was the person's mounting system, which is why I've been pushing that LA Sheriff's mounting system so hard, uh, because it's the one I've seen that works consistently the most yeah. across the board. What about guns predominantly? I mean, your, your normal flare, yeah, you're going to mostly see striker-fired stuff. Well, of course, there's a lot of appendix carry, uh, a lot of dot. You'll see a few people breaking in with some staccato stuff, but uh, not as not as prevalent uh, as in some of the other settings that we're starting to see creep in. Um, still see occasionally you see some 1911 stuff breaking out. This year, there were some people that came sporting revolvers. Um yeah, but, you know, as as Eric said, saw a couple of people that were trying to cover race guns, and it didn't do any of them any good. Uh, come match time, uh, I really think the to go back to the match time. I think the format of that match really is an equalizer. Yeah, at least the way we ran it this year, um, because there was nothing that really gave anyone a distinct advantage, and no reloads on the clock and that stuff. And, you know. Okay, maybe there was a little thing. If you're shooting a staccato or a full-size Glock 17 or something on the tiebreaker compared to, say, someone running a shield or something, yeah. there, there may have been an advantage. But on the standards portion of it, 
No, there was nothing that gave anyone an advantage. If you took care of your business, you took care of your business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw two instances of, of I, I won't call it a complete equipment failure. Uh, one was a dot that had uh, somehow or another gotten lint or deodorant or something in an open emitter optic. The guy brings it up and I see him doing the, the wrist circles trying to find the dot and then he defaults to his iron sights and finishes the course of fire and then he looks down and goes blows on his dot he goes oh there it is just some little piece of something had blocked the emitter uh and then i had one dot a guy brings it up cold out of the class to do uh some dry practice work that i was rolling through and i watch him reach up there and he's turning the intensity up because we had sunlight directly overhead uh which i wouldn't call that a failure just kind of maybe a training consideration, but being in the self-discovery mode that I was kind of preaching, he was like, Ooh, yeah, I didn't, you know, that's something I've not run into, you know, having the sun basically backlighting us to that, that degree. And then mine, my second block and in front of Wayne Dobbs, I break out the G 47. I don't have a great zero on it just yet. And I cracked my first shot high at five yards on a two inch circle. And I was like, that was my, that was purely me. And then I shoot the next three and they're on the left side of the circle. And I'm like, yeah, I, so bad on me. I had a gun that I didn't have a, a, a total confidence in the zero in that I demoed with, which, you know, I'm not a dot hater and I'm not an iron sights like preacher. It was just, you know, that's just two examples that I saw where we had a little shortcoming with equipment. Self-discovery. Self-discovery. There it is. Um, luckily, I know how to do Kentucky windage on the fly. So, uh, but the first round I shot my G45 and I was anchoring them. So I was like, oh, still love that gun. It won't die. But, uh, and then I said, like Mark was, or Rob, you were asking about, different types of platforms uh lots of sig products lots of glock product uh saw a few hk vp9s uh and then i saw one guy shooting an infinity which is probably you know half the value of my truck and shot really well and uh i i saw a few more comps this year than i've seen in the past like people with integrate integral comps on their guns working uh, so that was kind of an eye opener. I'd never, you know, with the macro and a lot of the stuff on the uh, P320s with bolt on mm -hmm. comps. Uh, I didn't see a whole lot of Glocks with comps this year, which I've seen in the past, which that was kind of interesting. Um, and then I didn't have anybody shooting a revolver in my block. Uh, I know there were some people that may have played with them in DB's block or something like that, but nobody showed up to my block and I kind of expect it needs to be a semi-auto um, and not near the presence of DASA guns that I've seen in the past either. Um, yeah, that, was, I, that was another surprising one. I think I saw one SIG Legion, I think. And then the only two DASA yes. guns were Ernest and, and Amy. Um, Cindy Bowser <laughs> in the women's shelter saw her. was yeah. shooting a SIG uh, TDA. I saw one guy with a CZ 75, uh, he showed up and, uh, he was a very proficient shooter. So 
he adapted and I didn't really have to give him any coaching. He'd already kind of understood the progression. So, uh, but I hadn't seen a CZ and like, especially a DA CZ 75 and he had the model with the decocker. So, um, I, I didn't see the prevalence of that. Like I have in the past. Yeah, we'll say that the, the SIG P365 is very popular amongst female shooters. Um, I didn't, I did not personally see any macros or the LE side carry without the velocity reducer. Uh, I spent, I saw a lot of regular, uh, 365 XLs, uh, among shooters, mostly women, but some, some men shooting them. Uh, and then that Walther PDPF, I think, I think that's the thing is what it's called. Uh, that kind of catching on amongst the female crowd as well. Uh, I know Tatiana's Whitlock's been pushing that, and I had that's what Heather Reeve shot to win the match. Yeah, I, I saw two uh, of. I, I don't remember if it's a skew for Sig or not, but it's the XL grip module with the shorter slide. Yeah. Uh, had had a female shooter show up with one of those, so like she could hold on to it, mm-hmm. uh, and did a fantastic job. I saw one of the macros that did not have the velocity reducer slide on it mm-hmm. uh there was one guy i don't know if he was a cop or what but but he had one of the uh macros with the without a comp and i don't know he might have just put a standard xl slide on it i didn't didn't ask um and, and i just didn't see the prevalence of some of the other platforms i've seen in the past uh speaking of the the mine's a 365 carry uh I did not shoot it this weekend. I did take it to the range this past week and, and shoot it. We had to run a call for a new guy and I took it and ran it uh, for that. Um, I'm pretty impressed with the gun. I'm still trying to learn it. My optic hasn't come in for it yet. So it's got those really tall sights on it, which I didn't, didn't do any work with it to figure out where the point of aim point of impact was. I just loaded it and ran out and shot, shot a qual course with it. Uh, I did come back to the office and take the, um, uh, the magwell off of it because i thought it was pushing away the bottom of my hand from from the grip and just in dry fire i like it better with uh without the magwell sound like a, a good roundup what's next uh we'll say there were 42 presenters this year uh probably about that same number next year there will be some rotation with some people that got scheduling conflicts and or that just uh, Tom's going to change up some some things. So there'll be some new blood there next year as well. Uh, there are some people that don't present every year already. And um, so figure about 40 presenters will be back in Dallas. That will be the first weekend in April because the last weekend of March is uh, Easter in 24. Um, but we'll be at the Dallas Pistol Club until Dallas Pistol Club says they don't want us. Um, that's just too easy of a location, two airports within 15 minutes of the range, lots of res- restaurant support, lots of hotel support within 10 minutes of it. And it's just a great venue. And so expect us to be there. Well, the big question, did anybody make it to Jackson's? I did not. I didn't have the time to leave the, leave the, the earth, the DPC. Understand. Mark, did you have any other questions about tech, huh? No, I think I got them all. That's pretty much good. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm looking forward to trying to get into it next year or so. We'll, we'll try to make that happen. All right. Uh, Brian, any follow-up stuff on TechCon? Uh, yeah, this this was my first year as a presenter, and 
Tom alleged that he was going to invite me back next year. I hope so. Uh, next year, I'll probably offer a little twist on that block. But uh, I, I got to say, the the presenter dinner was incredible. That was a great, uh, great event. And uh, I, I was just really, uh, one, I was honored to be a part of the, the, the uh, presenter cadre. Uh, two, I wanted to throw a... <laughs> Wanted to throw two shout outs, one to Ryan McCann, because my vanity finally got the best of me. And I was like, dude, I, I'm having a hard time walking. Can you throw my gear on? <laughs> Take me to the bay. And uh, uh, and, and it's uh, that that deal. And then Eve, Evie Kulskar took uh, took a picture of me and the lovely Miss Trish. She had a Polaroid one step at uh, at the dinner and. Uh, throw a quick shout out to her because she took like the cutest picture of all time right there. Uh, my lady making me look like a, you know, a curmudgeon, but anyway, uh, and then what was the fine? I had a third one. Uh, just the, let me think of how to phrase this. Uh, Trish came as a guest and she had never been around that crowd before. She'd never seen she, she knows Melanie Bulky. They're like, they're buds. Uh, and now she's she's buddies with Sam Dazonia from Wilderness. They're all, you know, pals. But the one thing she she remarked was, uh, I was really impressed to see just how normal the people are that come to that event and like how friendly everybody was and how like uh, it was a real like tribe, you know what I mean? Where everybody was was so accommodating and friendly and just and then the last thing she said was i'm glad i got to meet all your gun boyfriends uh <laughs> that you texcapade with and all that she she got to meet like eric in person and have dinner and uh wayne dobbs of course but uh and then and tom and and just just everybody there and she was just like kind of overwhelmed with like wow these people are normal and they're really nice um so you know that just that just goes to show you what kind of a like a tribe that Tom has built around that uh, that community and uh, yeah she was like I really kind of want to go next year so we'll see how that goes but yeah was, 60 60 percent of the attendees this year were first time attendees oh wow yeah, yeah we had like 179 first timers wow that's, that's okay. impressive. And since you mentioned the, the picture, I, I must point out that uh, Tamara Kill got several great pictures of Eric and was posting and the them. In the group. And I lost track of how many people came up to Tamara and said, wow, you even made Eric Gilhouse look good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, let's throw a, a special thanks to Tamara, yep. who her, photogen her photographic and photo like artisticness I know she got some really crappy pictures of me because she is the only person that posts pictures online where I don't have a stupid look on my face. That's, it's a running joke, but she goes, yeah, I sort through all of them. And, and Tamara does a fantastic does. job every year. Yes, so. she does. Eric, any closing thoughts on tech? <clears throat> Coming from the cop in the military world. Um, and having started to make a pretty serious effort to try to understand decent normal human beings 
before I retired more so than I was getting with working with them at Gunsight. It, it's just super neat to spend that much time around normal folks. Um, not cops, not military, right? Though they're, they're there, but be able to spend just time around normal human beings and such the diversity of them and be able to talk about things and from experience, from research and try to find a way to communicate that to the decent normal folks that show up at the conference to try to give them some benefits. You know, along that line, uh, Luhan Hamblin was a first time presenter this year and she hauled in a steel target system to use for a class that, that she was teaching. And she made the comment that once her class was over, all of the students in the class stayed around to help her load the targets back up. Yeah. And that it was over in 10 minutes and that usually she gets left on the range having to do all that herself and it takes an hour or so. Yeah. And, um, you know, she seemed to be genuinely happy to be there and she was very well received um, by the by the tech. Con good person. I knew Lou well. She's a yep. good lady. Had her as a student. She's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, folks, if you're listening, be watching. I don't know when uh, the registration for 24 will drop. Uh, it sold out in record time this year. Part of the reason we had 179 new attendees is that a lot of the longtime attendees, ah, I've got till October to buy my ticket and everything, and they fooled around and it was gone. So, um, when it is released, I'll drop it in the in the show's Facebook group. So you can get in there in a hurry and get your, your spot signed up. It is the best dollar for dollar training event that you can attend. It is just, and not only is it a training event, it's a social event, it's a family reunion. It, it, it is uh, truly a spectacular weekend. And I came home thinking, yeah, on Monday, it's like, you know what? Don't obsess over what you're going to teach in 24. You've got plenty of time. Just calm down. And then yesterday, Tiffany sent me something about getting started for 24 like well we're right back in it uh, the pro planning process has already started um, yeah, just for just the audience what is tuition uh lee uh, it was 500 and something this year okay and, yeah and so think about that most of the traveling trainers in the top shelf are 200 plus dollars a day for their classes and so you're getting three days of you know most of the top shelf out there that you can get into to see for under under that amount uh plus all the social time and network sometimes uh, i'll have a class picked out on my schedule that i'm going to go attend and then i get roped into a conversation walking to it and i look around it's like okay all these people here can be teaching the class that we're standing there talking to and uh you get just as much information out of that uh, there's also a social tent that is normally set up that can be kind of a central gathering spot. It got commandeered uh, for some classroom this year because of the weather, weather and uh, um, just and an outstanding event. And there. there's the hotel lobby. Yeah. And there are some of the pickup dinners. Mm -hmm. um, so there's plenty of time to sit down and socialize with folks outside of your normal peer group. Yeah. yeah. I know there were people that were coming to the hotel lobby to hang out that weren't staying at the hotel. Yeah. Uh, just to be part of all the social gathering and stuff sure. that went on. The, well, thanks uh, for the brief. I'm sorry. That was, what well, did you say, Rob? I cut him off. No, I, I was just saying thanks for the back brief. It's been really interesting, and, and hopefully I can make it sometime. Sure. Sure.
the uh, didn't mean to cut you off, Ron. No, I, you know, Lee mentioned the social and like the family reunion thing. Um, I saw at the the dinner, you know, Tom Tom made the statement at one point. He said, you know, uh, as far as our family is concerned, like me and Lynn look at you guys like you're our family. Uh, and I'd never really caught on to what he was. I mean, he mentioned it a few times, but, you know, Lynn, who couldn't be in attendance, is on Zoom on a projector and everybody's walking by saying hi. And I was like, I, it was kind of moving. I thought, man, they, they really do feel like this is a part of their extended family uh, and they treat everybody that way. And uh, and it was the the social aspect Lee talked about. I had several students that listened to the podcast that, you know, have seen me on this podcast or primary and secondary or my own or whatever it is. And I don't do a lot of open enrollment training. So oh, I had a lot of people coming up to me just in between classes, picking my brain about things because they're like, we don't, we don't normally have access to you like this. Um, and pretty much all of the trainers that I've, I've ever interacted with, uh, even going as an attendee, you're going to get like, you're going to get the exclusive access to, Hey, I got five minutes of this guy's time. Cause he's, he's a normal dude like me. He just, has a good curriculum and a, a base to teach from. Uh, and I had one guy that I've, I've run into at SHOT Show and some other things that signed up for my class just because he wanted to see, like, what's your two cents on this? And after the class, we talked for 30 or 45 minutes at the back of my truck, you know, and um, and that that's kind of invaluable when you're on the journey of handgun training. Uh, just to be able to pick somebody's brain for 20 or 30 minutes. And even if it's like, what kind of coffee or bourbon do you like? What, like, uh, and that's just life stuff, you know? It's not just shooting stuff. It's like life stuff, right? Uh, so I really enjoy that part of the event. And, and I especially enjoy getting to hang out with the chess club. And <laughs> you, we didn't even you talk brought up about. the bourbon and the coffee, and I'll just throw a shout out to our buddy Bill. F, because I don't know if he wants his last name oh. out there or not. Right. This guy took Good my shotgun. Yeah, this guy took my shotgun class last year and we didn't have any racks on the range. So we were decking the shotguns on the ground. It was a time suck. This year he shows up with three shotgun racks and yoga mats for my class so that everybody can rack their shotgun. The yoga mats are there to protect the muzzles. And we didn't have anywhere near the time suck with it and got everybody on and off the guns as quickly as we possibly could. And that was a, that was an attendee who just wanted things to flow better. That's, Not to mention the fact good. he's, he's the concierge to the tactical elite when it comes to bourbon books, cigars, coffee. Yeah. One I, uh, of, on the family aspect, uh, you know, Eric and John Dobb and I did the class called the aftermath. And in that class, we're talking about, what happens after a deadly force incident you know john and and, and eric's the first person you know there was the incidents they were involved in directly um we had an attendee who has been involved in an incident and basically had a flashback in in the middle of the class and had realized there were some issues that they had not worked through and had kind of a had kind of a moment and I talked to that individual later and they made the point of saying, I'm glad that that happened here 
amongst this group of people who won't think it's weird, who who won't, you know, whatever. Just because I was here, I was here amongst my friends and my family who understand what was going on. And she talked about how therapeutic, you know, in in the class, it all came up. It's like, okay, I got some stuff I got to deal with. And, uh, you know, better to happen in, in a situation like that than in a board meeting somewhere. Yeah. 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 That, uh, oh, it, that and back to uh, the den mother. Uh, so he found out Trish was coming and Trish likes rye whiskey. And he, he brings us like six bottles of rye whiskey and he goes, yeah, and I got this, 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 and this. And uh, I said, Okay, well, yeah, I'll take one for you. And he goes, no, I brought this for Trish. It's not for you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. But the point being, I mean, that guy has a heart of gold. Yep. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think TACCON would. And he does the same at Revolver Roundup. Yeah. Uh, he did it at Thunderstick you know, Summit. Thunderstick. Mm-hmm. If, if, uh, if he's in a class that Wayne's hosting, like I would show up and go, crap, I just barely got here in time. Didn't have time to grab chow. Hey guys, I got breakfast burritos for everybody. Yeah, that's just the kind of guy he is, and I can't pay him. I'm actually I took a 1911 commission build, which I don't do anymore, and I was like, "Yeah, bro, I'll build you a cool one," um, just because that's how much I like. One, I care about the guy, and two, that that time putting together that gun, I'm at like. That is a small down payment on how much he does for that community. So, yeah. good deal. All right. The, the reason we all gathered tonight was because <laughs> <laughs> we were going to talk about what we've been jokingly referring to as range cottas. And please understand that we're not singling out any instructors uh, individually. Uh, nothing like that. None of this is the play gotcha. I did hear uh, a great, great, great joke about podcasters at, at TACCON. I said, when men mansplain things to other men, we call that a podcast. And Hanny and Lee have two great ones. Yeah. So tune into Hanny and Lee's book. Right. Uh, and, and Eric's block. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one of the Davis boys, uh, myself, and there was a lady that has a podcast sitting there, there like three of us in, in one class. Uh, Who was the gal? Aaron. Oh, Aaron O'Donnell. Yep. Yeah. Girl yeah. with a gun. Yeah. Um, good podcast. I've listened to a couple episodes of hers. Good podcast. Yeah. But in our text campaign that all of us on the show tonight are part of, we got to discussing range cottas. And what we're talking about there is things that get introduced in the classes and that, that some instructors do like scan processes after a shooting, uh, you know, after you shoot a string or whatever in a class, uh, shuffling side to side in your shooting position on the line to try to simulate movement. And all that you're doing is really shuffling from side to side and not moving. Uh, just those type, type things. And so, uh, Mark, I'm going to throw it to you to start that conversation. Okay, well, I was going to actually suggest that we do this one because I think it's important. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do on the range, we're seeing guys do, have at least initially had purpose of trying to break a square range mentality that we're shooting pieces of paper. And most of the tactics and techniques that were out there for years and years and years 
did a great job of defeating a piece of paper, but weren't really designed to go against real human beings that were uh, doing things beyond what that piece of paper was. Everybody felt good about, you know, doing this and that. Um, the first one I'm going to go to is my experience back in gun sight. Uh, we started with the eyes and muzzle going together and determined how you use a paint defense where you take the muzzle gun, you scan left and right, supposedly to break tunnel vision. That was the idea behind it, which was a good first start. At least it addressed the issue of fact that we are going to have tunnel vision. And we are going to have uh, this focus downrange, but the real world is it's not a paper target. And the real world is be a bad guy can be behind you. So the idea of being able to change out and do something different with that uh, was a good start, but it wasn't enough. And I, I go back to it because that was what I was trained on being a gun site graduate and believed in it until I got involved in my shooting. And the last time, the last thing I wanted to do at that shooting was take my gun off of that threat that I just shot. But yet, had I not uh, had my partner come beside me, if I had somebody else come beside me, I probably wouldn't be here today because I did not look behind me because I would never train that. I would never train to look around the area to see if there were other threats. And so it changed the whole way I do training as a result of that. And then we've seen the progression uh, through the class I teach for that national organization of where, again, trying to break a straight range mentality of just facing down range to make a 360 degree environment um, People were dancing around in circles, and it, again, it was a, it was a start. The concept was good. The application was a, was valid as far as trying to break that, but it just didn't play out the real world of what we need to do. So we need to get a balance in there. But and then again, I see instructors that now come out, and everybody wants to put their own spin on things. And um, Daryl, wish Daryl was here because he could he quote it better. But Scotty Reitz, uh, who you guys may or may not know out of LAPD, said. Anybody who was turning around and turning their back to a threat that they just shot had never shot somebody. Because you're not going to turn around that threat. You're going to keep your eyes there, but you still need to look behind you because unfortunately we have lost officers uh, from not checking their six. And we've lost troops in both battlefields recently for not checking their six. There's a time and place for it, but it needs to be dealt with in a way that it's not a um, set martial art is this we're going to do every single time we do it? If you don't do it this time, then by God, you're wrong. So that's one reason why I want to get passionate about this thing, because I think it needs to be more reasonable on the expectation. Uh, Eric's discussion on the ready position. I'd like to hear more about that. I think it's a good uh, content because, again, Rob and I were talking today about ready positions that I've used ready positions since I learned it in 1978. And I don't point guns at people that I don't intend to shoot. And we had a lot of officers walk around with their guns up in the air, pointed at everything in the world. And I didn't do that, but he said, they don't do it out here uh, in this part of the world. So I'm not sure where the disconnect is, but being the fact that I train around the country and I train officers from all four corners of the United States and in the middle, I see a lot of different mentalities and ideas. Uh, one of them that I like is the bungee quarters who bring the gun out, they shoot, immediately bring the gun back into their chest instantly. Or the guy who is a speed holster, who holsters his gun as fast as he draws his gun. As soon as he fires around off his back and holster. A lot of this is competition based. A lot of it was, again, good concepts to get some other ideas on how to do things. But I think we need to come to a balance of it. And I don't think that we're doing a good job of that. So I like to hear more on Eric's part about the ready positions as far as what you guys were teaching, because I have some real good concepts of that too, but I've talked enough. Go ahead, Eric. So before I hit the ready positions, um, 
like Mark, I, I came out of the gun sight tradition. Well, first I got it from LAPD and then got it, came out of the gun sight tradition. So I am comfortable working from a low ready and I'm also coming back to an assessment a down and scan, if you will. Um, where I think problems start is when you get the student who isn't trying to work the process and is trying to work the technique. So the instructor's gonna, if I don't do a scan, the instructor's gonna say something to me. So I'm gonna go, and then put the gun away. Well, you didn't freaking see anything and it looks, right. it's, it's a waste of time. Um, from there, then we get into the question of context. And you guys already brought up Uncle Scotty. Um, and I went down, it was my last stint in gang, so it was probably 2011. We went down and did some vehicle takedown work with Scotty and his guys. And without going into the whole thing, I had a shooting problem I had to solve that took place between the A pillar and the B pillar of a car and in the front seat. And I fired my single shot. It was a head shot right where it needed to go. And I come off the gun and I go into the assessment and I start working that target left target right kind of thing and scotty makes contact with me in an oh so delicate and gentle way and says you got a pillar to b pillar what the hell are you having to scan i don't right now that carries over to a hallway so now i'm at one end of a hallway i have a problem at the other end of the hallway it's problem solved bad guys down do i need to rotate left and right well maybe any if there's doors off the hallway i need to pay attention to them but am i really having to work 45 degrees to either side no change that to him in a bar and i just dumped a dude at the counter in a bar i don't know if the full 360 degree turn makes sense it doesn't but, but what spalding and douglas talk about is taking a step and turning at a slight angle to open up your vision that has the bad guy in one side of it and other people in the other makes sense but again it comes back to the context right am i in a fight in front of the fight am i in a fight at the front seat of a car am i in a fight in a hallway am i in a fight with a whole lot more people around me and what i see from students just like the snatching the gun right back because i fired my shot and i got to pull it back right away the just waving the brush left and right neither of those make sense and they're not acceptable um what we talked about lee and i talked about over dinner is you know the southeast we did not have the gun sight and lapd influence on us and we had the state training facility and other than that you had rogers and you had mid-south and those were both competition driven shoot fast shoot accurate but uh i mean for years uh and lee has talked about that and i have to you know we were taught search at the end of the muzzle. If I'm coming into a room, you know, everywhere I'm looking, that's where that's where the muzzle is going. And it's only in relatively recent times that's that has started to change. And uh, you know, Lee's been an adamant disciple about that for for a good while, along with with, with you know DB and Wayne and other folks. Um, but again, we put muzzles on folks all the time. I know that's a, a little bit off the topic. But it also goes back to uh, what's been taught with with competition. You know, if you if you run your IDPA local match and you instill the rule, you can't sweep a no shoot. You know what happens? People fall apart, and, and that's not. I mean, so um, you know, 
Georgia was kind of a wasteland, really, unless you had the money and the time to go to to Prescott and go to Gunsight yeah. or, or something. And uh, so we were we were well behind the power curve on some of that, I, th- I think. And Lee and I have had that discussion before. Um, yeah, the, the snapping back, the the tactical dance, the the, the Charlie's Angels muzzle high, um, and all this stuff that, that you know they've seen somewhere. Uh, you know, John Wick Four, which is great entertainment, but that's what it is. Brian. Yeah, so you guys hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. These are these are sound. I'm not using my normal setup, so I can't hear myself. Because anyway, um, the big one I saw, and I tried to bring this out in the class without, you know, throwing daggers or any of that stuff. Uh, was a lot of the stance stuff. You know, one of the questions I pose in my lecture, and this is, please don't think this is me patting myself on the back because I came up with this. It wasn't. But just exposing people to this for some self-learning. I I had a kid come up. I said, show me your shooting stance. And he gets into what looks like uh, about a nine-year-old taking a karate kata test stance. And I go, Okay, that's that's a very optimal or optimized shooting stance for breaking a metric. Who gets to decide where your feet go when the feet when the fight starts? And you just see like light bulbs kind of come on. And I said, chances are you're going to be standing in some format that you don't want to fall down, so your feet are going to be staggered. So let's start from there. Um, and then it was to tie in the mindset piece. I had everybody and I wrote on their target, the met, the target scoring zone that they were going to hold for themselves. And the first question is, well, what are we shooting next? Like, why are you concerned with that? Well, because I want to set all my stuff up to do the best. And I said, well, then you're engaging in this range kata. You're, you're trying to optimize every single thing. I want to know what you can do when you don't know what the standards are other than the standards you're going to hold for yourself for accuracy. And then everybody said, Oh, I'll hold the 10 ring on it. I'll hold the 10. I'll hold the 10. And I had a couple people go, I can hold the nine. Like, Oh, why is that? Well, I don't know what's coming next. So I think I can, I can competently hold that. Guess who the shooters were that performed better on that. The ones that said, I'll give myself the nine ring. And they were shooting tens and X's, not mm-hmm. knowing what the next exercise coming is. So it was, I tied it in with mindset <coughs> and marksmanship, right? And, and the whole purpose of that was, if you don't know what the conditions are, what are you capable of delivering right now? And again, light bulb moment. I said, so all the other things that were, well, Anchor your feet six feet apart. Stand as wide as you can to control the menacing recoil of a nine millimeter. Uh, with don't a know what the time st- with a con- whatever, right? And it one, it leveled the playing field, and two, it made people go, "Oh, well, am I doing this for the purpose of breaking a metric, 
or am I doing this for the purpose of I can deliver this? I don't care what you call next. Um, and, and I contextualize that to kind of it self eliminate some of the kata stuff. Right. And I'm guilty of it too. When they said, Hey, you got a four second time standard. I went, well, I'm going to widen my stance because I don't know what's coming next, but I'm going to be ready to shoot it in the, in the match. Right. Uh, so I set myself up to be perfect. Um, one of the things I did was I got to, I got to allow people to buddy dry practice where somebody's racking the slide and simulating recoil, recoil for them. And you wouldn't believe the number of people that, that found a pretty natural shooting stance. It was weird. Um, and, but it was, it was more driven towards instead of training for metrics, train for what you can deliver when you don't know what the metrics are. And then I told everyone after I had them pick their target zone, I said, all right, if you shank one out of the target zone, you get to download your gun and go over here and we're going to do 10 dry presses for everyone that's out of your scoring zone. And I see every, like half the crowd go, oh, can I change mine? Can I change my? And I'm like, well, that's a mindset issue, right? Because now that you know there's something punitive afterward, you're willing to hold yourself to a higher standard as opposed to the people that went, I'm comfortable holding a nine on a B8. They were like, yeah, go. So the people that were really thought they were really at the razor's edge of performance decided, if I don't know what's coming, I need to give myself some forgiveness all of a sudden now that there's a punitive. And I didn't, I didn't ultimately do that. Right. I just said, no, we're not going to do that. But your mindset now is determining what your training should be. And it was like, you know, um, but the purpose of that was to eliminate range theater and range kata just by pressure testing what their abilities are right now, not knowing what's coming because who determines when the fight starts, right? Or the, the and I borrowed that from Tom, like who gets to determine when, when you get to start the fight, you determine when the fight starts, but they, they determine what brought you to that point, right? Nobody tells you, oh, hey, there's a fight coming. Put your feet six inches apart, follow the foot, any of that. It just happens. And we spend a lot of time trying to, to beat metrics on the flat range when the reality of it is we need to see what we can deliver right now when we don't know what the metrics are. Um, and then, you know, the, the look over the shoulder thing, I don't have a huge problem with that. I have a huge problem with, okay, I'm going to put my gun in some awkward position and I'm going to do this theater and turn and move and all of this. And I've seen people do that in real life. And I'm like, you just shot at a person, dude. Like, what are you doing? Like <laughs> bad guys right there. So you've got to think like, can some of that be detrimental? And we look at the context of it. Uh, we had some officers that brought up, hey, maybe when we make entry on a high-risk warrant, the guy in the back probably needs to be checking over his shoulder to make sure Bubba and Jim Bob, the two neighbors that are friends with this guy, don't come in and try to assault us from the back. Okay, how many of you are running high-risk warrants? Is it, does that facilitate that we need to anchor this into our training? Well, if I'm doing those all the time, absolutely. 
if I'm not, maybe it's, you know, hey, do I need to take a quick peek over my shoulder to make sure the good guys aren't going to come and shoot me? Probably a good idea. Do I need to put the gun up next to my head and do pirouettes and crap like that? No, probably not. Um, the gun sight methodology, I really like that. Like, hey, take a quick scan, uh, assess what's going on, and then make your next decision. The other one I do that to kind of eliminate some range kata, and I know I'm just pushing this back to the cloud, the block I teach, but it's what I know. Um, I would tell people on follow through, be ready to take another shot if you need to, and your command to shoot is the whistle. And the number of people I'd see go, oh, he called for two, boom, boom. And I'd go, boop. oh crap, I'm supposed to shoot again. Like without telling them, hey, I'm going to make you at some point in here, I'm going to give you another command to shoot. You better be ready to do it. Mm -hmm. I'd see a number of people drop their muzzle, do the, do the look arounds, and then they get another indicator that there's a threat. And it's, oh, all the guys that followed through and they're prepped, ready to go. Okay, now they're okay. This guy's playing catch up. So we got to be real careful with how we train our brain to react under certain certain circumstances and it's very difficult to simulate that on the flat range is hanny mcmood coming in it looks, it looks, like, like, it. It looks yeah. like it well it's so. been nice seeing everybody tonight so, great time <laughs> leave. But so we'll uh we'll catch y'all later to, to round to round all of that out is if nobody puts you into a position where you may have to react or you may have to do something that's out of your comfort zone and you don't know what the what the next shot calls for or the, you know, the next task you may be given. We, you might be wasting your time trying to break metrics. Does that make sense? And if you can, yeah. if you can shoot competently, then be prepared to shoot competently, regardless of the metric. Right. One of the things. You know, yeah. I was going to say, no, go ahead. If you got to finish off. No. And, and what I was going to proposed to that is that's one of the reasons that I find a lot of guys in the community that are pretty high level trainers like Justin Dial very big on part times as opposed to metrics right as opposed to can I do this much in this time it's can you perform in this time regardless of what the next iteration you're going to be requested to do is can you do it in this time frame. We're not trying to go beyond that. We're just trying to operate in this window of time. So anyway, go ahead, Eric. One of the things we've we've seen at Gunsight, and you know, we have had this issue happen of people trying to do the speed reholstering, right? Like I gotta put the gun, I gotta either whip the gun back to my chest or I gotta whip the gun into the holster. And the problem with that, and it's not just happened at gun sites, happened other places, is we get the finger on the trigger while reholstering negligent discharge. Trying to get people to get off the gas on that end of the problem can be positively impacted by trying to work them through some semblance of a reasonable post-engagement sequence, right? Muzzle down, head up off the sights, take a look around, deep breath, finger up to the frame slide interface now we can go back um you were talking about not knowing what the next drill is one of the things for for working street cops and decent normal human beings is 
I don't know how long I'm going to be holding somebody at gunpoint. Um, I worked most of my career in a suburban, low-income area adjacent to a, a city, right? So there were like three of us that would work the metropolitan area, the area around the city. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we would get help from guys in Outlying Beats, but I was in an event where I was holding people at gunpoint over five minutes, which wasn't that long. Right. I also had another event where I went to an officer involved shooting where I had a 45 minute code three run to get to that scene. Right. And that dude was hanging out for, I think he had about 35 minutes before the first unit got there where he was holding the dude at gunpoint. He had just shot. So the gun's not going away. Um, I think if it, the principle or the philosophy behind it is understood and that's what's drilled, right. Which goes to the context thing that we've talked about. Uh, it's going to be better off than just do X, whatever X is, right? Here, here's why we're doing it. Here's what, here's what we want you to accomplish with it. Here are ways to accomplish that. Yeah. Uh, I, I had an interesting one in my block. I gave the instructions that, okay, the whistle is your command to shoot. Your follow through is to be ready to shoot again. If I say, X number of words, you're going to recover to a low ready, and then I'll tell you to holster. If I give you another whistle, you need to be prepared to shoot. Well, how many times do we shoot it? I don't care, man. It's your class. The course says four rounds. You can shoot four rounds. You can shoot one round. Hold yourself to the same accuracy standard. Yeah, but how many rounds do I shoot? Again, that is your choice. And it was like, why well, shouldn't have to make this the, a lot of the feedback mm-hmm. I got was why well, shouldn't have to make decisions because you're giving the course of fire. And I'm like, if you shot one, if I called for four rounds on the initial volley and I give you another whistle command, you can shoot once, twice, three times, four times, empty the mag. As long as you hold that accuracy standard. Well, how many rounds do you want? It's your class, man. Shoot it all you want. <laughs> and it was like, but but you didn't tell me how many to shoot. Like the second was like shooter's choice, bud. Like make your own decision on that. As long as you're ready to shoot the next time I blow the whistle, we're all friends. And if I say recover to a low ready, you're ready to do that. Yeah, but how many rounds do I shoot? And I'm like, this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about that turns into kata. Okay, if he gives a second whistle, I give the target three rounds. If I give a second whistle, I don't care if you mag dump it as long as you keep it in the same the same accuracy standard. Now I'm not going to yell at you. Well, what if I shoot too many? Well, what if I don't shoot enough? Well, you tell me. What do you think you need to do? Just hold the accuracy standard. That's the only thing I've given you. And if I blow the whistle again, give it some more rounds if you want to, or give it one, give it. Yeah, but, and this went in a cycle, and I'm like, do you see what I'm saying by you're getting ingrained in there's a command, and I execute a command instead of let me think behind the gun. Yep. Because if you shoot one, I'm happy. If you shoot six, I'm happy. If you shoot 10 and they're all in the same accuracy standard, it's a happy meal. You get to reload before everybody, but it's your class. Uh, so I tried to... <laughs> implement some of that stuff just as a 
Well, think behind the gun. Don't just think about what I'm saying or what I'm asking you to do. Think behind the gun. So anyway, now Eric's going to sign up for my class next year and I'm going to get real nervous because he's going to be in there. So, you know, the square range is, is already an artificial environment mm -hmm. and there's only so much that we can do in that environment. And I understand the compulsion to try to teach things to, that would translate out into the real world. But in my opinion, when we do things that are so artificial and manufactured and contrived, we're actually wasting time and programming students for the wrong things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going back to, I was a student in my range master instructor class. And I was, you know, you do coach people with the other students in the class. And we were shooting at an, on an indoor range and my partner for one of the, the sequences, every time a reload come up, they would almost bounce off the walls of the shooting stall that we were in going side to side. And then they would struggle with the reload. I was like, hey, stick the reload. <laughs> well, why are you doing this dance in here? And the answer was, well, instructor so-and-so told me that we should be moving anytime we have to do that. I said, okay, I get it. But right now you're trying to pass a test. And why are we doing it artificially? You're just bouncing back and forth off of a wall. You're not actually moving to anywhere of benefit. You're just dancing. And then later on, that led to, with another student that led to an instruct, a discussion of a certain instructor's post-shooting scan technique in which you actually do a, you turn your back on the person you just shot. Yeah. And, and my point in the whole conversation was, why would I turn my back on the one person in the world that I know just tried to kill me? Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, yes, I should scan and check my area, but there are ways to do that without turning my back completely on the one person in the world. I just used deadly force on them because I thought they were trying to kill me. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of thing is what gets me. And, uh, you know, going to what Brian was talking about with the foot position and a class I took not too long ago. Uh, overall, great class, but there's always little things. Was teaching that, you know, if you had someone that was cross-side dominant to teach them to shoot with their strong side foot forward. That only works standing on the line. That doesn't work when I'm having to go over there or I got caught in a position where I can't get in, into that. Or you you're know, sitting in your car. Yeah. You know, what matters is getting the gun in a usable form in between me and the bad guy and pressing the trigger without misaligning the gun. And you got to be able to do that from whatever your stance is or whatever your position is. If I'm flat on my back, my feet position is not going to matter. So I use, I use that as an example in mind. I, I will say that getting people to work with the other foot forward is a step on that path yeah. because we've all, whatever we teach as a platform, yeah. we have a platform, right? And if the student gets too ingrained in that platform mm -hmm. to where they think that's the only thing they can do now, when they're, they're walking forwards or more realistically walking back, trying to get away from something, right? They're timing it to where if I'm not in that platform, I can't do stuff. Yeah. So if then you can at least get them to accept that, well, what if I flip the other feet the other way? 
I can still shoot. I can still be on balance. I can still deliver force, manage force, do all those other good things. There's some validity to that, but it's on the, it's like trigger pinning, right? It's one of those things where there's a point for it early on, very early on. And then you start, a, you take it away and get the person to work the process later, right? So you have a platform. Now we've switched up the platform. Now you get to where you can do it in any position. Eric, I think your, Eric, your point on that is, is contextual again. It's, yeah. it's a good place to be is if, if the context makes that because you're not going to be in your perfect shooting stance for most of the time you're involved in. It's not going to be. I, I like the Bruce Lee coat. Uh, a good teacher protects his pupils from his own influence. Yep. Don't uh, don't get so rigid in my format here that you lose the context of, of the fundamental arts, right? But you know what's anyway. what's interesting? These same guys that have these habits ingrained into them, whether their classes or their agency or their club or whatever. You put them in a force on force with Sims and the wheels come off and you don't you don't even see that. You see massive confusion <clears throat> sometimes. Yeah, you, know, you, you go back to Dave Spalding classes in which you shoot from cover. And he makes the point of people teach using cover by the drill starts with you're already behind cover. How did you get there? Exactly. You know, so and if we want to get people to move if we want to get them to learn to shoot from different platforms etc set up cover and have them move to cover so and, it, and it's, not just, re- it's not just a half step forward and a half step to the left like on a georgia quality course <laughs> yeah. either yeah. so so to pimp my reactive shotgun class that's what the class is working towards but you start out a couple three steps out from behind out in front of cover with distance distance off to the side now you got to move rearward while running the gun get back behind the cover itself and then solve the problem and thus ends the pimping of that class we may or may not have handy mahmoud uh he keeps appearing and disappearing on my screen and sometimes he's on his side and sometimes he's vertical handy are you with us handy are, are you, you with us I can hear you. you. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Apparently, uh, your internet's bad, Hanny. Hanny, would you just go get the, the equipment for your podcast and you could probably be understood? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll have Hanny here to be, to be our emotional support guy. Uh, for the for the rest of the episode, because I, yeah, I can't hear he's what he's so supportive. <laughs> I, I want to throw out a couple things on that, and uh, sure. I, I discuss it on is I think since we are on a square range, and that is our most used format that we have, we need to get people thinking about not being on the range, but being. And I, I'm a big fan of visualization. And I want them to visualize the fact that they're not on a range; they're in their home. They've made a traffic stop. They're contacting some guy on the street and that they're dealing with that guy who is trying to take them away from their family. And they need to understand that there's, this guy may have friends. So we try to give them that visualization of what are you trying to accomplish with this thing? Is it, is it shooting this piece of paper or are you taking on somebody who's trying to kill you? Um, you know, again, giving how many rounds are fired may be necessary, but you can say, okay, this, these, these hits are required to neutralize the threat. And if they shoot three and two of them are not in the primary hit zone, then 
are they quitting? Or are they continuing to shoot until they put that threat down? Do they got to put the hits where they're supposed to be, uh, even if they do happen to miss? Um, make them responsible for the rounds they miss. Make them think about the fact of why they're doing it. Make them answer why they do what they do. Uh, if you've got the guy who's got the bungee cord who brings the gun back to his chest real quick, say, okay, how do you know those two rounds worked? And they look at you like, what? Well, how do you know those two rounds you just put in that chest work? What if they didn't? What if you, what if they didn't work? And you're thinking about it and go, oh yeah, it makes sense. I said, you know, if you want to bring it back, fine, but bring it back after you know the fight's over mentally. And you've said to yourself, okay, this guy is down. So I try to make it a mental game, at least when I teach my classes, that, you know, what you do here still programs you what you will probably do on the street but not necessarily because the circumstance can dictate differences. Like we talked about these range katas and then putting them on force on force, that things change dramatically with the students, that they don't do what they thought they were going to do on the street. And like I said, from my gun side days, I thought I was going to go, you know, this little paint the fist thing, because that's what I was taught. And that's the last thing I want to do when I actually shot somebody. So it's, it does make a difference, but I want to try to get them that mindset that this is not a piece of paper, that is somebody trying to hurt them, and they do have to make sure that they look around for that other potential threat. If, as he said, Eric said, it's there. If you're in your bedroom and you're back against the wall, there's not a lot of reason to look around. Yep. So you got to put it. You got to put it where it's supposed to be. Okay. Uh, and if it's applicable, apply it. Uh, one of the terms we like to use is a tactical drag bag. We teach you a whole variety of techniques and tactics. Once we teach one of those, you take it and you throw it in the drag bag. You, have with you. you carry that drag bag with you everywhere. Now you get involved in something and you just have to get involved. And you go, oh, hey, I can do this. And you reach your bag, you pull out that tactic and you apply it to that particular drill because that now is applicable. But if it isn't applicable, like there's no cover, then you're not going to use cover. But if there is cover, you should be using that part of the tactic and move to cover. So I think we need to get out of this regimented idea of it. And I think a lot of instructors are doing it so they can make it look tactical. I mean, I know we've used that term a lot, but um, Rob sent me a great video and I don't remember who the guy is, but he's an he's a instructor on the different types of shooters out there. And he showed the instructor and it was the, you guys may have seen and he plays different, different students but the one he did was the instructor. And he went through this whole kata thing, coming out shooting, doing his loads, doing his thing, and he's only turning. And all. I mean, it was just—it's humorous, but I've seen that, and I can't say that I haven't even taught some of that until I realized the fact that hey, this is stupid. You know, I, the stuff I taught early on about you know shooting around the cover and then jumping back behind the cover—that's stupid. If I shot somebody, I need to stay out there and watch him because I don't know what he's doing. So. We need to get that mindset to people. And I think that's the important part of this versus getting into that, again, range idea of it. So, all right. Hanny, it looks much better now, buddy. You're clear. We can see you. Are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? No. Yes. No. <laughs> you still can't hear me. No. Now we have a great camera view of the top of your head and then your nose. All right. Okay. Yes, we can hear you, Hanny. That's why I keep saying no. <laughs> Hannah, do you have anything to add on range katas and stuff that people do just for the sake of doing something on the oh, range? Oh, let's all do it again from the beginning. <laughs> uh, okay. from the top. Uh, I'll add one thing. Uh, and uh, Mark, who is one of the wisest men that I know, uh, I caught what he just said. And I'll tell you something. Um, 
that I literally learned this morning. Um, there's a guy that I met today that's in our industry. And um, he, early, early in his life, he worked for a well-known, um, you know, uh, technology company that's near and dear in Texas here. And they had, they had an acronym, uh, uh, which is something like, uh, do the best that you know. And basically what he was saying is we, we, in terms of production, it was all about technology. He was like, we did the best that we knew until we find something um, better or more um, usable or whatever. But he said the trick was that he learned, uh, and this I think was before he got into law enforcement, was do the best that you know until we learn better. And then we learn better, we change. I hope that all made sense. It does. Perfect sense. And, Why? And the thing is, after... is in the firearms world, Sometimes it's treated like a religion and it's like, well, this is what we do. And then time stops and you teach that for however many years and good instructors are like, this is the best I know how to teach until I learn something better. And, and if the fact is that I'm teaching something different now than I did five years ago is uh, completely ex uh, expected in, in other arenas and in other businesses and the technology world and so on, but we don't seem to do that in terms of firearms. It's like somehow if you change, it's like you're breaking the code. Yeah. But I just thought I'd add that because I just heard what Mark had to say. I got to know why we've been discussing this for 45 minutes. And then my brother from another mother shows up and summarizes everything in about five sentences. Thank Thanks, you. I, was, I was thinking the same thing. Cause that's who he is. He's not well, there is that. But... And, and then the other part of it is I'm the only idiot in this circle that is sitting here on this porch in, in uniform without my vest and without my duty gear. Because at age 53, I've jumped back into the stuff that all of us were doing like 25 years ago. <laughs> so there is that. All right. We, we've been going uh, a pretty good while here. We probably need to start working towards the wrap up. Uh, but I don't want to close out without addressing Nashville what happened this weekend and not going to get into a crazy hot wash of the whole thing just want to point out that yeah all of us whether or not you're in this profession if you're human you are sickened by what happened at Evaldi both yes, the carnage and quite frankly the abysmal response th that happened afterwards uh also sickened by what happened uh, Monday in Nashville, but we saw the difference in the response between people who were willing to go in and do what they swore they would do. I know with the, you know we all have our different oaths across the different states and everything that we swear to, but there's an underlying thing that transcends the words. Yes, sir. 
uh, when you put on the badge, you swore to do the thing. And uh, we saw guys who lived up to what they swore they would do. And, you know, they kept the carnage to a minimum. They got in and they did their thing. And, of course, immediately people seize on the – because that guy said, push the LPVO. If he just said, push the rifle, nobody would have paid any bit of attention to the to the fact there was an LPVO on, on top of the rifle. Well, guess what? It stayed in the one position the entire time. The V part of that whole acronym never got used. And it looks to me like he rotated the rifle at a 45-degree angle and used that offset optic on the forearm instead of using I, the I have heard he used the one power optic okay. not the low variable power yeah which brings up a whole other yeah thing for another day yeah but so, so without getting into the specifics of technique everything i just want to go around and give everybody a chance just to just to say what's on your mind about what you saw uh i will say you know immediately the two officers pictures that fired shots their pictures were plastered all over the internet of these are the heroes that dude with the shotgun, <laughs> whatever was going to happen, he was going to be there at the end of it. And he 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 was going for it. He, okay, he didn't press drop a hammer on anybody, but he was there. And had he had the shot, he would have he would have done so as well. There's no doubt. Just because uh, you're there, he doesn't mean you got to play. Right. And there were other people that were moving and doing the thing. It looked to me like we had a successful link up with two different teams, which is hugely freaking difficult to do for yeah. real. Uh, it looked like people had jobs to do. They knew what their jobs were and they did them. Yeah. And I know some people, well, they could have done it. Their search technique over here, whatever. Dudes did the thing. That's it. Uh, Eric? Yeah. Was yeah. It on, have I, Eric do it first. Yeah. You know, Eric is the man. <laughs> oh, this obviously is payback, isn't it? Um <laughs> I would, had I been on the ground in Texas, I would have hoped I would have done something else, right? I wasn't there. So I, all I can do is say that. Had I been on the ground in, in, with the guys at Metro Nashville, and I've been fortunate to work and teach with some of those dudes at Gunsight, I would have hoped I would have done exactly what those guys did. Every one of them, you know, they're clearing the rooms deliberately until they get the indicator of the shots and then they moved to the gunfire and they ended the problem it wasn't what they ended it with it was that they moved to the problem found it and ended it and i would have hoped i would have done what they did hanny oh okay first of all i'll go with this um go with the money as always <laughs> Um, and I mean that <laughs> honestly, um, the, 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 shortest version possible is exactly what Eric said. Um, the only thing I'll add is, uh, about five hours ago, I walked the school that is, uh, in the middle of uh, the city that I currently work in. And I'd mentioned that yesterday to the guy that I'm um, riding around with in my uh, extremely abbreviated FDO period. But, uh, but anyway, so we did it today. And we stopped by the school. And the first reaction was like, oh, is there a problem? And we we're like, no, no, no. And I introduced myself. I said, no, no, I'm the new guy. 
uh, and I haven't walked around your school. They're like, we're really happy to see you. Okay, so that's the preface. The thing is, is that that's what I did today because I brought it up and I said, uh, you know, the last time that I literally walked to school uh, for these purposes was uh, seven years ago. And, and I, and I walked it and I looked at the doors and I looked at, um, egress, ingress, uh, all, all, all those things. And there's a lot of things that you can plan for in advance, uh, but ultimately it's what Eric said. Um, the, the, those guys did what needed to be done. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, to quote Patton, you know, the best plan executed, a good plan executed today is better than the best plan executed three weeks from now. And, you know, they, they moved at the rate they moved until they got um, data or stimulus and said, no, 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 no. Now we need to do this. And they did it. Um, the one thing is, you know, on some of the social media is people are, you know, um, hammering on this whole LPVO thing. Look, that that's their terminology. I don't I, I really don't care if, if they'd have yelled, you know, supercalifragilistics or whatever. Uh, that was their terminology for AR guy up front. Not a bad idea. And that's what they did. And it all worked out for the good. And bless all those guys. You know, and yeah. just as, right after he told the LPVO to move to the front, he actually puts his hand on the back of the guy with the shotgun and pushes him up. Sure. To the front as well. Right. Okay. We all need Mossberg 590s because there was one in the video. Yeah. And uh, so however it works out, whatever phraseology they use. Yeah. Whatever were, it is. Uh, you know, and, there, and I see some guys on, especially Facebook, nitpicking about, oh, it's not about the gear. Okay, no, no one cares about the gear. Look, mm -hmm. the fact that the guy yelled LPVO, that, that's just their terminology for AR guy up front. Whatever it is, whatever it is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just know that this is as good as it could have gotten from the time that they got there. Yeah. And if more people acted like that, mm -hmm. we'd be in a better world. Uh, and I, I, I couldn't resist the temptation. I posted, you know, on Facebook today. I said, you know, I've been carrying an LPVO for 20 years before I knew what the phrase LPVO went. Because in 2000, in the year 2000, I went to a loophole CQT. Now, remember, this was 23 years ago. And that damn optic was heavy, ugly. It was only one to three, and it cost 700 bucks 23 years ago. But that's what I went to, and I liked it, and I've been running essentially an LPVO since then. Okay, great. That doesn't make me smart. That doesn't make me um, psychic or whatever. That's just what works best for my eyes, and it's always set on one unless you need to dial up and whatever. But but please, people, don't don't. Um, dwell on that. Dwell on what they did. And what they did was, frankly, um, what we hope would happen every time. God, we can hope. Rob Gert. Um, 
first I'll say they did their they did their moral duty and they understood it going in and they were selfless in doing it. Uh, forget the equipment, forget the tactics, forget anything. That's the first thing that the willpower to step up front and run to the sound of gunfire and disregard their own risk and everything else. That's what we hope we would do. That's what we hope, you know, all of us would do. Um, all the other stuff we can nitpick, we can talk about I, from a personal standpoint, being an old guy, when I saw a short barrel pump gun in the video, it warmed my heart. Okay. Me, me but, too, Rob. But, um, you know, you can't help get a little lump in your throat when you watch that, man. I mean, the tragedy, but, but then what they did. And unfortunately, not just Uvalde, but time and time again, we've, we've seen people not willing to do what they had taken an oath to do and what they're in a position and trained to do. And this just warmed my heart that there's some young people out there that are willing to step up and uh, fulfill their moral duty and do it with, with uh, bravery. You didn't hear profanity. There weren't mag dumps. It was, it was just, it was what it should have been and what it should be. And so I was, uh, I'd, uh, I'd buy either one of them a drink, anything they were drinking anytime, anywhere. So. Mark? Well, I guess kind of, you know, that's not what I did. I'm very happy to see the fact that we would do something this time. Um, I would like to see all the after action of uh, the situation on this one. There were a lot of officers in that hallway, and I'm not sure why they were all standing there. There may have been reasons. I don't know because I wasn't there. But I saw the two guys brush by a bunch of officers, and I guess maybe something somebody said that the tactic or the techniques they teach is to bring the rifle up front. Well, you know what? If I got somebody that's shooting at people or that is actively shooting and I got a pistol, I have a defensive means of training myself. So I'm not sure. Again, I'm not trying to criticize any of the other guys that were there because I didn't, I don't know what they were doing. Everything was fine. I just wonder, I have to wonder why. And I want to read why the guys that were there in front weren't taking action instead of just standing there. So we'll see. But I think they did a great job. I think it was an excellent performance as far as what they needed to do. And thank God those guys were there. It saved, it saved, it saved lives. You know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy that for my, I'm happy for my profession, unlike I was for Uvalde. Uvalde, I was, I was embarrassed for my profession. Brian? I'm going to take it in a different direction. Because uh, I have a kid in junior high, uh, or actually in high school now, but uh, cops did what they were supposed to. Uh, did anybody read who he was shooting at when the when they actually engaged him? He was shooting at the cops, right? There's a reason he was shooting at the cops because there wasn't any kids and there wasn't any teachers left to shoot at. So I'm going to throw it in a totally different direction and say, you know, the teachers, the staff that got those kids out of there efficiently absolutely, absolutely. without exposing them to gunfire. Uh, cops are going to, and it's not taken away from Nashville. Mm -hmm. Those guys went and handled business yeah. uh, and that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, but you had teachers and staff members that took the kids that they could and got them out of there. So 
I'm really interested to see what their training was. Because cops did what cops do. Run to the sound of gunfire, kill it. Um, but if you also they, you know, heard, you know, the, the, the principal confronted him in the hall. Yeah. Or confronted her in the hall. And yeah. stood her ground to the point before she was shot and killed. Yeah. yeah. So the cops, good on you. Uh, to me, the teachers and the staff are the heroes here. Uh, because they minimized the loss of life. And the only thing the guy had left to shoot at was the cops that were responding. Yeah. Uh, so I'll kind of take it in a different direction and we'll wait until the after actions to see yeah. how the cops performed. And, and of course, everybody in the world will armchair quarterback them, but, but the people that don't get enough attention are the people that shuffled those kids to safety. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I, I want to see. You know, who comes up on on social media with the Na with the Nashville drill now, like they did yeah. with the Dickens and all the other insanity out yeah. there? Yeah. yeah, and P.S. Yeah. F. those guys. Yeah, that's just the way I can say it. Yeah. Um, but you know, you've got you've got now a whole school full of kids that have a lifetime of trauma to overcome. You have cops that have a lifetime of trauma to overcome. But you know what? The cops were gonna we're going to take care of them and we're going to look at how they performed, et cetera. Yeah. But uh, the people that go kind of unnoticed are the people that shuffled every one of those kids to safety. The and by the way, didn't... my wife taught school for 38 years. So that, that did not uh, escape me either, Brian. Yeah. yeah. Like so, Brian saying those school teachers, the, the school staff and it being a private school, I'm going to spitball that that might've had something to do with the apparently trained nature of that response um, or at least the audible call that was executed on the fly. But yeah, like Brian's saying, those folks deserve some serious recognition. Yeah. Good call. And, you know, there's just not words to express to the families that lost loved ones in that incident and, I, and any of the others. Um, you know, us being gun guys and training guys, we're tending to focus in on, on all of the what did the people do that survived or or whatever the word would be. Um, you know, parents are burying children. And, and yeah. parents and dads and brothers yeah. and sisters. Yeah. And that, that we can't we can't lose that. And that's why we have to be willing to go in and stop evil when evil exists. Whether you be a private citizen, whether you be a badge toter, or what are you going to be? Evil is a thing, and the only thing that stops evil is good and being able to to combat it. And if not, it'll be left to run amok. And um, we have gone way, way, way over time tonight. So we're going to skip to go around and hey, everybody, what's coming up next? Uh, check out Cougar Mountain Solutions. Uh, check out uh, EDC Belt yeah. Company and Brian Eastridge and the Off Duty On Duty podcast. Uh, Mark teaches all of his classes in secret, so I can't tell you that. AFTC, but I, yeah, anyway, we'll worry about it later. Don't worry about it. Yeah. The nationally recognized firearms training program. Yeah. And nationally recognized firearms training program. Thank you. Yeah. Eric and John, Hearn and I do have the Cognitive Conclave coming up the last weekend of this month. There are only four slots, I think, remaining in that. 
So get on the firstpersonsafety.com webpage and get into that if you're interested in getting into it. And, um, you know, we, I guess we could go long tonight because we didn't have an episode last week. So we've averaged it all together to, to make a normal size episode. And uh, for those of you in the audience, I'm sorry that this production schedule has been a little bit erratic lately. It's just, it just couldn't be helped with being on the range on the weekends, working some nights and, and being on the road some. And this past weekend being at TACCON, uh, I'm going to try to get back on our regular production schedule. Uh, thanks to everyone who played along tonight uh, for this episode. And to your audience, know that your most important episode, excuse me, your most important asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us.